And for day into night, into day, into night, into day, night, for three straight days, it was just rowing on the deck by yourself, two hours on, two hours off. Then into the night, which is pitch black, scary as all hell. You've got these huge waves, wind, sideways rain coming at you. The ocean does not take it off at night. It's just pounding you. And you're, and you're, it's so dark, you can't see a thing. And I'm telling you, it's scary. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Adventure athletes live their lives between the goalposts of zero and 100%. Nothing is ever impossible and nothing is ever certain. This week on Ultra Habits, we are joined by Jason Codwell. Now, Jason is a world-class athlete, a leadership and high-performance coach and keynote speaker. For the past nine years, Jason has used the lessons learned from the sports arena to teach what it takes to be a leader in a competitive business environment. Now, Jason is an endurance and adventure athlete. He's accumulated world records from the oceans to the Nibib desert. Now, this guy has rode some incredibly long distances. He has won multiple gold medals, won silver, won bronze. He has rode 3,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. And despite a dramatic and treacherous 51-day row, including the emergency evacuation of two of his team members, Jason led his remaining crew to finish in Antigua, resulting in the American record for the fastest U.S. four to ever cross the Atlantic. Today, Jason is a president and owner of Latitude 35 Leadership, which uses experiential training to explore the finer art of leading and maintaining high-performing teams. He's worked with advanced managers in over 30 Fortune 500 companies and has taught at some of the top business schools in the country, including Wharton, Darden, Emory, Columbia School of Business, and the Thayer Leadership Development Group at West Point Academy. Now, folks, the reason I really wanted to get Jason on the show is we know about lots of leadership training, simulated environments. Jason and his team at Latitude 35 effectively immerse teams into real life contexts and environments. This is something that cannot be simulated. The pressure that he puts his clients through and the team's within the businesses that he works with, they are profound, they are real, and ultimately expose areas of strength and areas where they significantly need to focus on improvement. Now, it's super interesting stuff. Jason has found a way to pull together his love of endurance rowing and finding a way to bring those values lessons, wisdom that he learns out there, and what is some incredible feats to the boardroom and effectively to teams, helping them find how to be stronger together and how to operate better under extreme pressure. And I think irrespective of whether or not we have access to organizations like Jason to help us and the teams that we run, we need to think about 
you know, how's lip service around team cohesion and simulated experiences really serving the evolution of the teams that we're in? And is there and are there better ways to foster environments of learning and cohesion and team building in a context that's much more real and experiential. And I think if we can start to ask ourselves, well, how can we do that within the context of our own environments? We're going to start to move towards the right direction in making the teams that we work in stronger, faster, and better. Anyways, folks, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Jason. Enjoy the show. Peace out. I'm out. Jason, welcome to Ultra Habits. Second time around, we've had some technical issues. First, I didn't send you the right link and didn't hit record, but we have (laughs) arrived. We're here. Are you sure the volume's up? Are we going to have to do it a third time? Oh, man, what a bad start. Not good. Uh, But look, I'm sure it'll be better. Yeah, I know. It can only go up from here, so that's good. That's the good thing. That's the thing about a low base, man. Like a rock bottom, there's only one direction to travel, right? It's a great place to push off from that rock bottom. You know what I mean? So oh, look <laughs> at us going deep early. I like it. <laughs> so, Jason, I, as I said, I'm I'm really grateful that you've come on the show. It's always great to speak to someone from my local hood there in the Bay Area. Yeah. I um, we'll go into your story, uh, but interestingly enough, I did some research on you and obviously, you know, you, you've been in the rowing game and, you know, you're all things rowing and water. And it takes me back to when I did my executive MBA, they had us go to a rowing club and we physically had the strongest team there. It it was no doubt. We're all looking at each other. Like we're going to kill this. Right. Yeah. We get out there and I'm like behind the front dude. And I literally cannot coordinate myself to save my life. And, you know, we thought we were going to be out there kicking ass, you know, high-fiving. And when they, when they did the video and they, they showed the video later on, I was the only person that was cut out of the whole video. Because <laughs> I, I, I just couldn't coordinate with, uh. with everyone. It was so so hard and i'm sure we'll we'll go into that but that's my story about rowing yeah well it's it's a good it's a good one because that is exactly what rowing is all about and that's what we're going to be diving into is this idea that you know power and strength is great athleticism is great raw talent is great but if you don't have that interdependency um and you know it's really all for naught so yeah i'm looking forward to diving in it's a great segue yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it, interestingly enough, in that weekend, like we had to put together the componentry and, you know, they kind of wanted to see how we work as, as, a, as a team. And it was it was interesting to see how certain teams that didn't necessarily look strong came together because they had different skill sets and a cohesive way of working, were calm under pressure, whereas I think our perceived strength backfired and we kind of imploded. Yeah. the process but why don't we go back in time why don't you tell us jason how you came up where you're from give us some flavor to your to your background man yeah absolutely so i'm from the san francisco bay area a little town called walnut creek about 35 40 minutes outside of san francisco you know it well we're from the same area love the hat by the way um, although unfortunately they're a las vegas team now but um uh, when we grew up they were they were certainly uh, in the bay area anyway um 
you know, did not grow up rowing, grew, grew, grew up playing the classic American sports of football and baseball, um, took baseball into college, played, uh, eventually played for uh, San Francisco Angels semi-pro team, was a left-handed pitcher. For those of you that aren't uh, familiar with baseball, that's, that's a special thing, and um, got injured, got injured in, in, in my college time and, and um, found uh, rowing after that as a place to, I guess, find something to be part of something greater than myself, which I was desperately looking for at that time. But for me, growing up was all about, um, was all about baseball, it was the San Francisco Giants. My dad was a huge, huge baseball fan. And as I like to say, the Giants were kind of like the soundtrack of my childhood. The game was always on the TV. When we were in the garage tooling around, it was always on the radio. My dad had season tickets. And at that time, Candlestick Park, where the Giants played, was this miserable piece of concrete. <laughs> way out in San Francisco. Yeah, way out in San Not in the pretty part of San Francisco, the part you don't go to. You know, every time there was a high tide, the parking lot flooded, and it was just <laughs> miserable. And I loved every second of it. And, um, and so, you know, this was, this was my world was uh, a, a dad who was, who was, you know, um, very committed to raising me, coaching all my teams, um, uh, but also intense. Um, and when I told him that I wanted to be a professional baseball player, he took me at my word. And so we were, um, you know, he was always looking for ways, uh, you know, we call them hacks today, you know, we call life hacks, but back then it was, it was looking for ways of getting better and it was just grinding. So, you know, I told him I want to be a professional baseball player. And I think like that very next week and I showed up the backyard with this huge monstrosity of a hitting net back there with a bucket of balls and a batting tee. And I'll tell you what, I can tell you 62 bucket, uh, 62 balls in that bucket. I knew it very well. And, uh, you know, he just told me you got to hit two buckets a day if you want to be good. And that was, you know, this is the, this is the late eighties, early nineties when this type of, this type of repetitiveness wasn't, wasn't really, wasn't, you didn't see that a lot yet. You know, kids were playing all kinds of sports. You played baseball in the summer, football in the fall and, you know, basketball in the winter, whatever it was and around and around you go. And my dad was like, if you want to be good, you've got to concentrate on one thing and one thing only. So anyway, that's kind of what I grew up in. So, you know, rowing was, was not in, you know, that wasn't my purview until much later in life. Oh man. So many points of reference. First of all, I have to tell you, I was an Oakland A's fan. I was a Bash oh. Brothers fan. Like, I, I mean, I love to hate I, the Bash I, Brothers. I don't know how you like the A's. We were extraordinary in the eighties and early nineties, and like it was just a great time to be an A's fan. And I was a Niners fan. I think the the Raiders weren't there; they were still in LA. LA, yeah. Now I'm in Australia. I just wear whatever's from the Bay Area because <laughs> I, you know, I I, I miss it, but. The Bay Area, you know, reflecting, there's a lot of dynamic stuff that's come out of the Bay Area, right? Like you look at the, the Silicon Valley, look at education, you look at sports. I mean, there's something to be said, particularly I think about the 70s and 80s and 90s, kind of growing up there in the Bay Area. And when we're in it, you don't necessarily know. And I'm still trying to figure it out as to what the secret sauce is there it's kind of like this hippieville with this kind of flavor of the silicon valley and you've got this hyper competitive environment overlaid with this chill northern california vibe i actually played 
my youth soccer in the Walnut Creek system, although I was from the East Bay because the, you know, the systems and they, they were quite good there. So there's, there's some overlay. So, and baseball as well. So there you go. So there's a bit in common. So let's, let's talk about how you made the transition from baseball to rowing. How did you find that? Uh, I didn't, it found me. And I'll tell you what, it's, and it's a, it's a great story because it's probably my first true insight into what a great leader does, not, not who a great leader is, but what, what they do. And so, um, you know, I'm out, I injure myself. I choose not to get the surgery for baseball. I'm in my going into my senior year of college, Sonoma state university, small state university up in the wine country of California. So we're talking about the North Bay now by Sonoma and Napa area, beautiful campus, but I went there to play baseball and now I'm done. And, um, Next, you know, it's, it's autumn of my senior year. I'm lifting at the rec center and the rowing coach comes up to me, a guy named Mark. And, um, you know, he he says, I heard, you know, he introduced me. I heard Jason, right? So, yeah, yeah. I said, I heard you got injured in baseball. I'm sorry, well, I'm the rowing coach here. Would you be interested in, in trying that out? I said, no, nah, I'm not interested. I didn't know what rowing was, like, to be fair. You know, I couldn't, I wouldn't have been able to tell you whether it was rowing or whitewater rafting or canoeing, you know, but all I knew is I wasn't interested, you know, well, he convinces me as only this guy would be able to do to, to go to the tryout that following Saturday at 7am, which, you know, for, for, for a kid in college, that's early, but I choose to do it. I go there and it's just a shit show, an epic shit show because it's a hundred kids. I'm the oldest one there by far. Cause I'm a senior. It's like, incoming freshmen and all these people that are trying to find their place in the university on campus. And, and I, I get in a boat for all of 10 minutes. It's like you experience. I'm not able to follow anybody. They got me doing running laps in the parking lot. It's just too many kids. And it's not a boathouse, by the way, don't, don't think about Harvard's boathouse. Think about a boat yard with gravel and shipping containers. I mean, when the small little, you know, internet research I did leading up to it, it, it was nothing like I saw on, on my computer. I left that place thinking I'd never see the sport of rowing again. And, you know, just again, just going back to the gym thinking I'm just going to have fun on my final year of college and then go get a job. Well, my, that next, that same day, actually, I go back to the gym and um, just, you know, doing a workout and this kid comes up to me, a student says, were you at the, uh, were you at the rowing practice, the rowing trial? So yeah, I was, I was there. I was there too. What'd you think? He says, I said, nah, it's not for me. You know, because yeah, I didn't, wasn't really that impressed either, but I'm thinking about giving it like a, a solid one week try, you know, just give it a good college try, so to speak. He's like, well, what about maybe carpooling together? Cause it was off campus about 15 minutes away. And I know I'm thinking about you know, disregarding this kid, but there's something about this guy. Like, you know how it is. Like this kid is not, he's not like your average kid. He's making eye contact. There's a level of confidence there. He looks like an athlete. I've seen him in the gym. He lifts like an athlete. And I'm thinking, what's this guy's game? So he convinces me. And, you know, we start going for the whole week. We get up and practice now is at 5, not at 7. So we get up at 4.30. I pick him up from campus because he doesn't have a car. We drive together. We get to know each other. And all of a sudden, this 100 people is, you know, shrunk down to like 20 because from you know, 5 a.m. now, now nobody's going. But I'm starting to realize these different guys are there. Now, all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, this is a different group than I saw. These are, these guys are serious. They look like athletes. And the guy that I was with, Mike, who came up to me in the gym, 
you know, we're chatting in the car on the way there. I said, you know, what, what got you into this sport? How'd you find out about it? You know? And he said, ah, the coach Mark came up to me in a gym and asked me if I wanted to, to try it out. I said, that's so funny. It's exactly what he did to me. And as we started over that week, started talking to the other, you know, 18, 19 guys there, we're finding out that we all have the same story. Mark came up to each one of us. And furthermore, we were similar in the fact that we all came from some sport. Mike blew his knee out on the soccer team, just cooling down, running a few laps. There's another guy that got cut from the basketball team because he wasn't quite big enough. And Mark found us all. And so what we found out later was that he didn't bump into us. He actually went to each coach from every sport at Sonoma State and said, give me a list of the guys that you cut. Give me a list of the guys that are injured. Give me a list of the guys that you don't think are going to make it, that you're redshirting. And he recruited. He went and he stalked us because he, 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 wanted, he knew one thing. I got to build this team up. And by the way, Sonoma State rowing was nothing, nothing. It was a club team. It hadn't won a race yet. And he said, look, he went to us and said, I can't promise you wins, but I can promise you you'll feel part of something greater than yourself. That's what he was offering me. I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but that's what I was That's what I was missing of baseball was I was, you know, no pun intended, but I was rudderless. I didn't know what, what was I working out for? What was I doing? And we had a very special first year, our inaugural year there for us as rowers. We go and win about seven regattas, go from a no-name school to winning all these races and we don't understand how special we are, but it's because this coach, this coach, he, he provided a, an environment for us to feel that again. That's my introduction to rowing. Right. So this coach identified that you all had the physical prowess, the mindset, and you probably lacked direction and purpose, and he leveraged that. Absolutely. Exactly. He leveraged it. And, and to a, and to our full extent, yeah, he knew we were athletes. He wasn't. He didn't need rowers. He needed people that were going to commit to the team. And I fell in love with the guys on the team before I fell in love with the sport. And that was a big difference. That's an interesting point. So let's 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 focus on that. So are you saying that you committed to the team in the process? And as a result, fell in love with the sport? Yeah, exactly. The sport was, I mean, I love the sport of rowing. By the way, I don't think I ever truly loved baseball. I, I loved my dad. He loved baseball. And that was kind of, a, that was, I think I learned that now, you know, because once I got into rowing, I said, oh, no, this is love. But it wasn't like that at first. Rowing is that sport that you can't, it's not like basketball, you just pick up ball and start shooting hoops at a park. It, it, there's a lot of things that you have to have. You don't get the full effect of the sport right away so yeah i was i was i was loving the team i was loving how how when we got in the boat that we actually had to talk to one another you know baseball for all its merits is a very individual sport especially as a pitcher you know it's like i go out on the mound and it's up to me and now all of a sudden i'm in this 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 extremely as i mentioned before interdependent sport where we're not going anywhere if we're not all rowing together you you found that out when you were doing your executive mba and I, all of a sudden now we're having to talk. We're having to strategize. I'm learning about my teammates a lot quicker than I've ever had to learn about any teammates. And I'm 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 loving them and I'm 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 liking them and I'm respecting them and I'm learning about them. You get off that water onto the dock and you know you're chatting away as you're cooling down and stretching out before you head to your classes. Finding myself can't wait for the next morning. How was the adjustment from being a 
a lone wolf as a pitcher to on a team. And what was it like in terms of how did the interdependency required in rowing impact your relationships with them versus when you look at your relationships with your colleagues in baseball? Yeah, the the progression was was rough to say the least and slow. You know, I, I it's it, you know I had a lot of success as an individual in rowing right away. I was big and strong. I, I got the the stroke down and and the mechanics down quite quickly. But the one thing I really didn't get down at all um, initially was this idea that you had to give up this this individual ego for the collective ego. You know, and I, I couldn't get my I couldn't get my head or my heart around that. And one of the things that happened was because I was the big, strong kind of aggressor on the team and I was the oldest guy on the team, you know, I, I was, I barked at people, you know, if they, if I didn't think they were working hard enough, I was all over them. And I thought that that's how you lead. And then a guy on the team one time, a guy who, who, who wasn't on the, you know, he wasn't in a top boat or anything. And I didn't really pay him much attention. He started popping off one day at practice and I let him know that I was irritated. He said something to me. I mean, you got this guy's some balls to say this to him, but I'm so glad he did because it stuck with me to this day. He said, you know, people do what you say on this team because they're scared of you, not because they respect you. And I mean, that as here we are, you know, whatever, 15 years later, and I'm still thinking about that line. And that was such a great one. It was so true. I was doing this. I was leading with fear. I was, people are people are intimidated by me. I'm going to use that. And it's a great, by the way, that kind of stuff is a great short term motivator, but it's not sustainable. And. I found that out later on in the year as we had to do what's called seat racing. And seat racing let me know that nobody really respected me because they weren't they weren't following me because I was a leader. Seat racing is the way how you find out who's fastest in the boat. You take two boats and you row them down the river at the same time for 2 minutes. You notice the difference after those 2 minutes. You take one person in each boat and you switch them. And then you row it again and you see what the difference is. So if this guy, you know, if this boat wins, this boat beats this boat and then you switch it and then they end up even, you know, the guy that switched into the slower boats faster. And so I couldn't win a seat race and I didn't know why I couldn't win a seat race. I was the biggest and strongest guy on the team. I was getting beat by every single person. And until I realized that it wasn't about how hard I could row. It was about how hard the people that you, the boat you switched into were willing to row for you. And that was a huge determinant factor. in what I was doing is, is it doesn't really matter um, how fast you are. It doesn't really matter how strong you are. It only matters about how much people are willing to pull for you. And that difference was, you know, this is really kind of, I started my, my now 15, 16 year journey on my obsession with leadership and is is this idea that, um, you know, I've had to find, I was never the best athlete in baseball. I mean, although at college, I was one of the strongest athletes on the team. Then I go to, you know, an elite training team. Now I'm the smallest, the shortest, the lightest, the least experienced. I had to find out, I had to find ways real quickly how to be good enough without relying on talent. And so that was my first indicator. Mm. So now you're moving through, I suppose these light bulb moments and you're becoming interested in leadership and your passion for the sport is growing. What do you do when you get out of college and how did you get on this trajectory of effectively what I would call endurance rowing? Yeah, there was one less stop 
one last stop I had to have be- between college and getting into these endurance rows, and that was going to um, Vesper Boat Club in Philadelphia upon graduation from university. It's an elite team, probably considered the best boathouse in the country. It's a pipeline to the national team and to the Olympics. And I get a last chance prayer of an invite um, by the coach who was a three-time Olympic medal winner from the Netherlands, retires at age of 40 after Athens, takes the job as a head coach there, flies, flies, moves his whole life out to Philadelphia and coaches there. Takes me on as this, as the, as the last, the 16th and the last athlete there. And I have quite frankly, no business being there. Like I said, I'm the shortest, the lightest, I come from the worst school. I mean, they're all Ivy, Ivy League guys. I go from Sonoma State. No one even knew where that was. These are all Princeton, Yale, Harvard, Columbia, Brown, Dartmouth. And then there's me, Sonoma State. And they've been rowing as long as I've been playing ball. So, you know, th- th- there's no reason I should be on this team. And, but, you know, I'm hanging on and I'm realizing if I'm going to put all my energy here, row twice a day, basically, essentially live this prison like lifestyle where I'm here in Philadelphia, I'm not. I'm not starting a career. I'm not with my family. If I'm going to be here, I want to, I want to win. I want to be the best. How do I stay on a team like this? And, you know, it, it, I, I started learning that in college that I, I can stay on the team by simply making the boat faster when I get in it. And how am I going to make the boat faster when I get in it? Because I need to be a kind of guy that when I get in that boat, the seven other guys are saying, Hey, Jay's in this boat. And I love him or I owe him for what he did for me. He did me a solid. I want that leverage. I want that human leverage. And and so that when I get in that boat, they pull harder because they feel that 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 they owe me something. And so I started to figure out how I was going to be that person on the team. And it kind of happened organically. It wasn't uh, anything uh, I planned or, to be fair, particularly proud of. But I was my first year there is fall. I remember this. I'm I'm there. I'm just trying to like, I'm starting to become friends with the guys. And we're out in Philadelphia downtown. For those of you that don't know, Philly can be a tough town, um, great town, but it can be tough. And when you can imagine a dozen guys, all six foot five or whatever it is, walking into uh, a bar, you attract a lot of attention, some positive, but some negative as well. And we got into it one night, you know, with some guys and rowers are typically gentle giants but remember i'm not a rower i'm a ball player and so i'm not that guy and and one guy's popping off and i just i hit him and hit him hard and he went down and you know we got out there and the guys appreciated that and i didn't really think anything of it because i'd done that before not proud of it of course but i realized that this is going to be kind of my world is i was going to be like kind of the enforcer the guy that like kind of was there for everybody not just for fighting but like for picking people up i was going to be the guy i was going to be that that, you know, that cornerstone type of guy. And, um, and so that's what it was. And what happened was what really made me understand is there was a, there was a strict, no fighting, uh, rule. You, you're done. You're cut from the team. If you fight McKeel made that very, very clear, um, amongst other rules. And, uh, one time I got into one that I was not going to be able to hide. <laughs> I got into it on a Saturday night with the, with the team, you know, protecting some of the guys on the team. And, uh, Come Monday morning's practice, I've got, you know, my hands swollen, my face looks beat up. I just know that this is it for me. And uh, and I get to practice. It's in the middle of the winter, so it's indoors. McKeel right away sees my hand bandaged up the way my face is. He says, what happened? I tell him, hey, I did get into a fight. I was trying to help the team out. Nobody else was involved that way. It was on me. And I, I just know this is it. I'm kicked off. 
And he says, see him after, you know, after practice. And the team's like, you don't deserve this, Jay. No, they love me by now. I love them. I've been there for two years. And um, he, uh, you know, we do the rowing practice and I get off and he asked me to come into the round room and the women's team's getting ready for their practice. And everyone's kind of like, oh, geez, you know, what's, what's going to happen to him? And, and Mikhail asked me what happened. I tell him exactly. And he says, well, so how did, uh, how did he come at you? I showed him and he's like, and then he proceeds to show me how to use the guy's weight against me. And he shows me how to fight. And I said, geez, you know, after about 15 minutes of him telling me this and that, because I was just a brawl. I didn't know how to fight. He says, look, he says, um, yeah, I don't like fighting, but we all know what you mean to this team. And that is always been your role. So if you're going to do this, then you need to at least learn how to protect yourself. So I went upstairs and the guy's like, what happened? Are you off the team? I said, no, he taught me how to fight. But I just loved how McKeel... He understood his men so well. And yeah, that was a rule. And I, no one else would have been able to get away with it on the team. But he understood um, that that love and that admiration and respect for one another is why we were so fast. And I really appreciate that about him. Where it's interesting because I was just thinking of um, John McAvoy, who you may know. He was yeah. one of Rich Roll's guests. And he tried to, when he got out of prison, go enjoying rowing but i think from a class perspective he just found it quite difficult right because as we know rowing it's kind of like lacrosse right it's it, it exists within certain environments yeah and so you were like in philadelphia with all these ivy league kids that would have come from i suppose um thoroughbred kind of backgrounds they would have been you know they would have been they would have grown up with the sport here you come from sonoma the scrapper X baseball player. Uh, and I guess you added an element of X factor and you knew what your strengths were. Do you remember what made you consciously think that you were going to play the role that you decided to play? Like, was there a, like, how did that come up for you where you had the foresight to realize, well, you're not going to be the most talented. You may not be the best. You don't have the experience, but this is, position you're going to play because i think that's super important for anyone that's looking at being on a team being an effective member of a team is really understanding how can you augment or adapt your style to add value to the environment hey guys it is rj here and we wanted to take a hot minute to thank you for all your continued support of the show we truly do love you guys man and value all the support you have given us over those last two seasons so we want to make our impact more direct for you so do this screenshot this episode and make a post and tag us at ultra habits use hashtag ultra habits and we will give you not only a shout out on the following episode but i will follow up with you for a 10 to 15 minute conversation to talk about habits and what you can do to make your habits much more impactful in your life. But anyways, we're going to leave you back in the capable hands of the guest. Enjoy the rest of the show, peeps. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. And I'd say that, well, two things. One is being honest with yourself and what you're good at you know these this idea of like clearly defined roles and responsibilities is so important i mean we talk about roles and responsibilities and on teams and at work but it all starts with how honest you are with yourself and with your team and, and like i knew like that i wasn't going to be the best i knew that i wasn't going to be able to make up for this 
decade of rowing experience that these guys had over me. But there was another thing about these guys. Yeah, they went to these great schools, but now they're out of the school. Now they're at, they're in Philly. They're giving up. They're prolonging their golden degrees to get into great jobs, making good money to chase a dream. And so that's where they were different. I mean, yeah, what, at Princeton, at Harvard, at Yale, at Dartmouth, at Columbia, they were they were the guys, you know, and they were having they were living the life. But it wasn't that life in Philly, you know that 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 was gone. Now we were we were it was grinding, you know, and it was there wasn't that those types of of frills and and fringe benefits that come with rowing in an Ivy League school. So there was a um, there was a need for these guys to make sure it was worth it for them, the time that they were spending out there, just like it was worth it for me. We were all very aware that we were prolonging our lives to be there and to chase down a dream. So we had to be very, very honest with each other about what we could do to contribute to the speed and efficiency of that crew. And for me, it was that I was the guy that would be would be there for you. You know, I would be there for you. I'd, I'd, I'd put in another session on the water if you needed something to help you get your blade work better. I'd be in the boat with you to help you, you know, pick you up at the bar if you weren't supposed to be there in the first place and you got, you know, and you got drunk. This is before Uber. So, you know, guys didn't have money for cabs. I'd pick you up, you know, whatever it was. But that's what I was. I was the guy that they loved, you know, and and that was that was Really, also another big thing is the more I've accomplished in my life, the less macho I feel I need to be about my accomplishments. And the more I realize that it's a lot about love, you know, and and love plays a huge role in um, a lot of my success. So I think that's I mean, I couldn't tell you any point where I stood there and said, yep, this is my role. This is what I'm supposed to do. It just over the course of three and a half years. I started loving them more. They started loving me and each other more. And it was because we were starting to settle into our roles, you know, boom, 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 boom. We were just sand being sifted within some rocks and just kind of finding our place. And I loved it. You're like the Dennis Rodman out there, man. <laughs> I was kind of, yeah. You know what tattoos. I mean? Yeah, yeah you're less, like the Dennis Rodman of the Bulls, right? Yeah, with less tattoos or ties to North Korea. But yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and no Carmen Electra. <laughs> yeah, um, right. uh, so let's move to... The story behind Latitude 35. So tell us how you got to endurance rowing and let's unpack that journey that you did with Thomas. I think it's a real powerful story and I really want to get to the learnings there. All right. So let me, let me, I'll, I'll quickly tell you how I got there and I'll throw us right into the boat in the middle of the ocean so we can really start to unpack it. But essentially Latitude 35 is a leadership company that I started I was working at a similar type of niche company in Philly when I was rowing. And then after I, I finished rowing on the team at Vesper, I started my own company um, back here on the West Coast in California, back where my in my hometown. And, uh, you know, we're starting to grow. We're doing these great experiential leadership programs. And as we're getting bigger, I'm, I'm starting to realize, you know, how can we differentiate ourselves from the other companies that are claiming to do what we can do, you know, consulting firms, training companies, big companies. And one of the things I, I realized through my research is a lot of these companies focus on, um, you know, studies. They focus on, 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 on the data behind building great teams and leading great teams. Surveys show that, studies show this. And I realized that we had a lot of success through the experience. I had been on teams. My, 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 
my, the people that worked with me had been on good teams and bad teams. They've led teams. They've been led by people. They've, they've seen dysfunction. They've seen high performance. They've made mistakes themselves. They learned from those mistakes and made more. And we were really a company that was using this experience to tell stories and to show that stuff, not unlike what we're doing right now. And I said, okay, I want to double down on this because I think this is what makes us different. And so I wanted to, I wanted to go out and test our leadership philosophy and say, I'm going to go enter something that seems so hard so impossible. And I'm going to put our leadership philosophy to test. And that's how I stumbled on this rowing race, this Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, a 3,000 mile rowing race from the Canary Islands, southwest of the Caribbean, across the Atlantic Ocean. And I'm thinking to myself, this doesn't even seem, I'm a rower and this doesn't seem possible, but this is exactly what I wanted. This is what I'm going to look for. So I, in 2013, I start putting a team together. I formed Latitude 35 Racing, so now we've got a racing arm of this company, and I put, I'm putting the team together for the 2015 race. And um, that's where uh, Tom comes into play. I get a, a, one, a guy that I rode against at Bestbury, wasn't on my team, but we rode against each other, big guy, Nick, um, and uh, his tenacious rower, loved him. Uh, he was on the team. Get another guy, Greg, who um, never rode with, but had a lot of utility, smart, real smart, real clever guy. And then Tom is my is my third teammate for this four person boat, who quite frankly wasn't much of a rower. He was he worked with me. We were very close friends. He did the operations side of our of Lot Thirty Five and all our programs. Decent rower, not great. Tall, skinny, couldn't put on muscle. On paper, to be fair, he's not the right guy at all. Um, and but proves to be the most important piece of this. So. You know, he um, we train and everyone seems to be coming along pretty well, except for him. I mean, he's just really struggling to put on the weight and all that stuff. I mean, he's not struggling to be part of the team. You know, he's he's there. He's 100 percent. But, you know, he's just struggling there. Well, long story short, as you well know, 600 miles into this 3000 mile rowing race, I've got a guy, Nick, my number one recruit, so seasick and has been for the for the last five days of this race that he can't hold any fluids in. He's, he's absolutely depleted. We get into the cabin on our fifth day of rowing out where, you know, we're rowing this boat across and he's, he's shaking, he's convulsing out there because he's just so dehydrated. We call the sat, we call him a sat from the doctors. They're at the start line still. I've been talking to them for the last five days of this race, of the, you know, the first five days of the race, I guess, and um, telling them, you know, how he's doing, and he's just getting worse and worse and worse. Finally, they say, all right, that's it. Um, we got to get this guy off the boat. We got to vacuum him. We're going to sail to you. You need to anchor in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and uh, we need to sail to you. Two days later, they get there, but oh, by the way, Greg, my other teammate, decides, hey, I'm going to take this chance. I'm out. I don't want to be here anymore. That this isn't for me. So I got a sick guy who's leaving, and I've got a guy who emotionally and mentally just isn't fit for it. He's not ready. And he's Nick seasick. Seasick. Yes. Right. He, okay. He got sick, and he didn't know that he gets seasick, or is it just random? We all got seasick, and we knew that that was going to happen. But he just didn't rally back. I mean, it's just that even to this day, talking to race officials, they see they say it's one of the oddest things. Is that you know, seasickness is a result of the fluid in your brain and what you're seeing is not lining up. And that misalignment is what causes you to be ill and nauseous. And once you get out there and you pass the islands, I mean, you're, you're, 
you're coming up and down these waves and you're getting pushed around and everybody's everybody's feeling it but you clear it you know eventually the equilibrium writes itself and it's a miserable first three to five days to be fair but once you clear it you feel much better but he just wasn't clearing and then it was getting so bad that he couldn't keep anything down that was the problem as he was throwing up so much that he couldn't even hold water or food down that's what ended up being his biggest issue so the boat gets there we get nick off it greg decides i'm out too that's a whole nother story that we have to get into at another time so now it's you know and i'm and i have to convince tom to stay you know i, I have to really convince him and um and so here we are 600 miles in a 3,000 mile race we're in third to last place we're in 24th out of 26 teams because you can see it on a smartphone and our land managers letting us know where we're at and stuff. You don't see the boats there. And, and this is it. Like this is, this is two guys in a four, boat made for four um, being manhandled. And this is, you know, this, it, this is where we're at in the situation. So right now it's not great. We're starting to row, but it actually gets worse. After about the second day of Tom and I just rowing by ourselves, and by the way, we're rowing two hours on, two hours off, 24 hours a day throughout the entire crossing. So I'm on the deck rowing while Tom's in the small cabin resting. And I row for two hours, then we switch. And then he rows for two hours, then we switch. And usually, Jason, you would have two on two. So it's one yes. man doing two man's job or one man doing three man's job. Two man's job. But the, yeah, so you, to keep the boat moving at all times, you're going on a two hours on, two hours off. So you as an individual, are responsible for 12 hours of rowing per a day, which is hard enough. But at least with a four-man team, you're doing it with somebody else on the boat. Now Tom and I are there on the deck of the boat by ourselves with all this solitude. So you got we got three days of just two things. One is solitude, but the thing is, Hurricane Alex was crossing over the the Caribbean at the time, and and it was going north of us, and the outskirts of that hurricane was affecting us and all the fleet, and so. On top of it just being us, we get hit by the outskirts of this hurricane where we're literally surfing down huge walls of water and we're scared and we're weak and we're beat up. And for day into night, into day into night, into day and night, for three straight days, it was just rowing on the deck by yourself, two hours on, two hours off, then into the night, which is pitch black, scary as all hell. You've got these huge waves, wind sideways rain coming at you the ocean does not take it off at night it's just pounding you and you're and you're it's so dark you can't see a thing and i'm telling you it's scary and at the end of that third day it's kind of like the ocean's kind of letting us go a little bit the the storm is finally passing but we're, we're done like i'm done i don't want to be there i'm going to be honest with you like i wish that we would have gotten off the boat you know i wish i wouldn't have talked tom into staying with me you know i'm 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 got salt sores stress fractured ribs i'm a mess and i'm finishing my last shift by the way like my last couple minutes of my my morning shift 6 a i got the 6 a.m to 8 a.m 7 58 i'm just trying to finish the last two minutes i got my foul weather gear on and he 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 uh he comes out of the cabin behind me i can hear a creak open these are coffin like cabins you just lay in them you know that's it it's just a coffin and he's coming out of it and he's getting ready for his shift. And, you know, for the last three days, every two hours, we see each other. That's it. And we offer some words of encouragement, empathy. I kind of like guy coming off shift kind of lets kind of gives the data. And the guy coming on shift is like empathetic and and kind of 
gives gives an attaboy type of thing. And uh, and so, you know, I'm kind of expecting him to say something nice when he actually says, he says, you know, hey, what what would you want for breakfast? And to me, that was just a very odd thing to say at that moment because, and I'm also upset about it because I'm I'm at my lowest point and I really need some empathy right now. And, and he seems to not know that, that he doesn't seem to realize it. But I realized that I'm, I'm, I am pretty hungry because I haven't eaten all night. And so I kind of go along with it instead of saying something that I would probably regret. I say, you know, I'd have the chicken risotto, which is one of the freeze dried meals that I liked. And he kind of he keeps playing along. He says, I'll, I would have the uh, spaghetti bolognese. That, that was his favorite. And then, uh, yeah, this is this is this is happening in the middle of the ocean, not at an Italian restaurant. And so he says, you know, what if I made you some coffee? Would you like that? I said, hell yeah, that would be great. And, uh, you know, and he's, you know, he says, I'll tell you what I'll, I'll, I say. He said, I'll, I'll, if you uh, if you row an extra 10 minutes, that's the deal he'll make with me. He says, I'll cook you breakfast. And then you don't have to worry about cooking it. Now, I'm vastly aware in this moment that this is 10 minutes of his shift that he's asking me to row. And he's emaciated beyond recognition. And he doesn't want to get on the oars. But he knows also that I hate cooking. So it was a fair trade. I'd rather put the muscle behind the oars. I hated jet boiling the water and getting it all prepared. It's not for me. So, and I'm telling you, so this is one good thing. See, rules and responsibilities, as I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I'm getting to my point because then I want to unpack this. I really do. Yeah. But this, this is what I'm this is the story that I, I I think you're alluding to, that this is such a pivotal moment. He finishes breakfast, and without any hope or agenda, I pull the oars in. So now I'm not rowing, we're not making progress. I turn around in my seat and I face him. I just we're just sitting. He's sitting against the cabin door. I'm sitting in my rowing seat, and he passes me his food. We just start eating. I mean, we were supposed to switch, but we don't. We decide to eat together. I hadn't seen this guy in three days, essentially. So we're just talking and we're just sharing what our experience. You know, you haven't talked to anybody in three days, you can imagine. And so for the next 30 minutes, we're eating and we're kind of laughing and joking and sharing our experiences. And at the end of breakfast, we say, all right. And we, we get back to the two on, two off. But something huge takes place in that moment. And again, we don't know it at this time. But from that day on, we're, we're, we're 10 days into this row. And remember, we're in third to last place and no one thinks we're going to finish. We start going faster from that day on and not just a little bit faster. We go a lot faster. And we start moving up from 24th place. And over the next 41 days, we move all the way up to 11th place. For 41 straight days, we rose so hard and so fast that we moved up from a team that they didn't think was going to finish to 11th place by the time we hit the Caribbean and the finish line. The other thing, the more important thing, is that at 8 a.m. every morning, we had breakfast together. He cooked a little more. I rode a little longer. And we did that thing. We turned around our seats and we just had a meal together. Now, we didn't know it at the time. It took time on land to realize that that was our way of recommitting to each other, of kind of re-answering that question why we were doing this. Before we left, our whys were different. I was about doing it for personal glory, you know, not having a, not making the Olympics and all these things. I was doing it to prove to myself that I was good enough to be the best. Tom was not. He's an immigrant from Azerbaijan. Him and his mother and his younger brother got a green, won a green card lottery in 2002 to be over here. His why before we left was to represent the United States, the country that gave him and his family a second chance. Those whys were no longer there. Now the whys were about each other. And so you go back to what we talked about at Sonoma State, 
fall in love with the team before that. This was exactly what this was. Our whys ceased to become about anything else but each other. At 8 a.m. every morning, we had breakfast and we were reminded why we were doing this. So for the next 24 hours, no matter how bad it got, I knew that breakfast wasn't quick. I was going to uh, wasn't far away. We were going to have that reminder, and I was going to be reminded who I was doing this for. And then I was starting to row as hard as I could, not as hard as I thought I could, which turns out there's a huge difference. That's that right there is what got me into these endurance types of rows and why I continue to do them because I'm continuing to chase that type of feeling. Wow, there's a lot in this. So for one, I didn't realize that this was done after you formed Latitude 35. So I'm assuming that this would have added massive fuel and firepower to what you were able to offer to your clients at Latitude 35, right? Because there were major learnings in this journey that you would have taken back and implemented within the constructs of what you're offering to your clients, right? Yeah, absolutely. The second piece in that, which I think you framed in a very unique and powerful way is that if I can paraphrase, you're saying that if we can shift the why to a, 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 a mechanisms that, that, that points us towards each other and serves each other versus different outcomes, we then move stronger as a unit. So like, for instance, in a business, everyone may have different whys, but at any given point, those variances in whys may create issues. But when you make it about each other, there's a unification in why you're doing it, I suppose, right? And you're saying that was what they're learning and the realization was on that boat that day, that by unif- creating uniformity as to why you were doing it, that was effectively for each other. The outcome was much more powerful than your individual whys. 100%, yes. And to add add to that as, as deeper context, two things. One is... I have found, you know, I've done three ocean crossings now, two world records, amongst many other things. And the thing that I've noticed is that pride will get you to the start line and maybe maybe a little ways off it. You know, this idea that whatever your personal why is, so this idea of glory or whatever year it is, but it won't get you to the finish. You know, instead, shame, for lack of a better word, is what does it for you. So when you're out in the middle of the ocean, it's no longer about those things. It's just, you're hurting too much. It, it hurts too much. It seems too impossible. Those things just don't have the legs that they seem to have when you were on shore. Instead, the fear of letting your teammates down or that shame that would come with letting your teammates down, that has real staying power. That um, that really does have what it takes. And I've noticed that. So instead, I'm building teams with people that I feel that I'd want to live up to and that hopefully will want to live up to me as well. And that's the first thing. So to absolutely what you're saying is true. Finding that that common why. And the other thing that we do now constantly, and it seems pretty straightforward, but I would challenge everybody listening is if are, are we really doing this in our organizations is that we create a mission statement as a team. Every team I go out, before we leave 
And we don't just create a mission statement and say, okay, that, that looks good. We have everyone create their own mission statement. What do they want to get out of this race or this row or this campaign, this adventure? Then we work like hell for months. At times, it takes months to combine one mission statement. And you'll see us, we fight over words and little phrases, and ah, it should be that word, it should be this word, and we have arguments. And I love it. It's all great. So that when we do finally agree on one mission statement, we all sign our names to it. And that becomes the common why. We create it as a decal. We put it in both little cabins in the boat. So you're staring at it every time you go into that cabin. And we not only live by that mission statement, but we make our decisions off of that mission statement. So if the mission is to go as fast as we can from one place to the next to break a world record, then every decision we make has to align with that. We've all signed it before we left. So there can't be any argument. It, can't, it wasn't an emotional decision. It was a data-driven decision. And this is this has proved to be very, very effective. And we all know what mission statements are. And we've all been part of making them and remaking them. But it's this idea of, of are we conce- or do we have agreement? Do we have buy-in to that? Or are people just saying, yeah, that's good enough? In fact, most of the things that I have found that have been the difference between setting world records and barely making out of there are, are the things we do before we even push off the shore, things like that. Mm. I'm just looking at part of um, something that you had on your website about latitude 35 building teams undertaking the an adventure in a way where human emotion is being leveraged. You guys recreate with teams that you work with the process that you and Tom stumbled upon in the middle the Atlantic Ocean. So effectively, you are creating crucibles with these teams that you're working with, high-pressure environments that fuse the teams together. couple questions. One, you talk about shame and public pressure or the pressure of the group driving, driving performance. What happens when one team member doesn't meet the call? Is there, any, is there coming back from that? And two, with the teams that you work with, after you guys do these immersion events and they go back into their boardroom or into the company, the situation may not have the same level of pressure as it did when they were out in whatever wilderness or environmental challenge you've given them. How do they maintain that level of cohesion so I guess the first question is, if a team member fails to meet the, the call of what the team requires, how do they come back from that? And the second question is, once these organizations that you're working with come back to the boardroom, how do they maintain that level of intensity? All right, let's start with that first one first. Um, if a teammate fails, I found this to be quite true, is that if a teammate fails, they tried, they really did, and they failed. I find that it is not usually that individual, you know, um, that, that failed. But there, there's a team, there is a, a team shortcoming there. And, um, you know, it just like a, a rowing team, you can't tell if you lose a race who lost it for you. You know, it was, it was the team that lost it for you. It was that collective, that collective um, organism that lost it for you. If a person truly was committed to the, 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 the mission statement, was truly doing everything that he or she, and they just came up short, 
then there was that was a team failure, not an individual failure. And there should be no can he or she come back from that. You know, there is it has to be addressed as what did we do as an organic whole that that allowed this failure to take place. So that's the first thing. But then we have teammates that just don't want to be part of it. You know, that they're just they call them, I don't know, whatever is a bad egg or just a tough. We've all been part of the uh, with those tough employees. The one thing I know is for certain is that everybody, like I talked to you about Mark there at Sonoma, everybody wants to be part of something greater than themselves. That is human emotion at its most basic level. We all do. Okay. That's why we join clubs and churches and, and all organizations. That's why family is so important to us. That's why our friend group is so important. We want to feel something part of something greater. If a certain person doesn't want to be part of your something greater, you've created this environment like I do with my teams, like I, I, I create with my our programs, and they just don't want to be in your job as the leader is to convince them, is to try to convince them that they should be. And if you can't do that, to move them to a place where they can feel that because you know yeah. that they want to, it just might not be your something greater. And sometimes moving them is within the organization. Sometimes moving them is outside of the organization. But I promise you, you are doing both the team and this person a disservice if you continue to just keep them there, even though it's obvious that this is not their thing. And that, that's a big, hard thing to do. And, and, and that happened with Greg, the guy who quit in that first row with Tom and myself. He just quit. And we saw the signs, by the way. OK, it didn't come out of the blue. I didn't, he didn't come up to me at the boat all of a sudden and say, by the way, I'm out. We, we, we knew it was coming. But I, as the leader of that team, couldn't get him to that place that he wanted to be, that he would do anything for this team. And when I had a chance, I should have given him a plane ticket before we even left and said, we'll do this without you. I didn't think it was possible. I didn't think we could do it with three people. As it turned out, you can do it with two. <laughs> but uh that that is that is that's the thing is is that if if they're involved then 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 it's a team failure not an individual failure if they're not involved then we have to figure out in a way that we can make it there so that that's addressing that what do you think about that no i agree i totally agree with you i think i think there are cer- certain systemic issues within teams that you know if everyone's giving 110% and you still fall short or you fall, fall short. Sometimes you just, you weren't good enough, right? Or sometimes there might be systems and processes that are ineffective and you iron it out. But I think to your point, if someone just cannot meet the call, these crucibles are a very effective way of testing the resolve and whether or not there's an alignment with the team. And I, I would agree with you there. Um, so I think that uh, is a very good point that you made. In terms of just shifting the conversation now to um, your personal uh, habits, because this is always where we go, what are some of the things that you would leave to our audience around your operating system, particularly habits that you engage with that help you be who you are, Jason? Yeah. I think the one overarching habit that I continue to try to like a muscle train and embrace, I fail a lot and I come back to it all the time. It's something I'll never give up on is we've heard this, this cliche, right? That, um, life is short. People say it all the time. I've said it. 
um, we always say that, right? Life is short, life is short, life's too short. Um, I don't know if life is short or long. I'm not really sure. I guess it depends on what you compare it to. But I can tell you that most of us don't actually believe that. We say it, but we don't actually believe it. I think that most of us believe that life is long and that it's infinite and that we always have another chance. And that is, I think, where we find ourselves not doing the things that we wanted to do. You know, we, we think life is long and therefore we, we decide we're going we're gonna to take piano lessons next month or next quarter when things kind of quiet down a little bit because we think we have enough time. We got more time. We, we, we put off all these things that we want to do. And life has been is a series of small concessions in my mind. You know, we, we look back at our lives at some points and say, what the hell happened to me? I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. I've done, I haven't done anything. And we get, we get people that have remorse and regret and depression because they aren't the people that they thought they were going to be. And they try to look for probably that one, that one moment, that pivotal moment that they turned away from it. It's not a one pivotal moment, small concessions. You gave it up. You took that first job out of college because it was the first one that was offered to you. And you'll have more time to get that other job that you really want. And then you stay in the job because you get the promotion. And then you marry this person because your friends are getting married. And that's the right time. And you know, to, you know, and that's what it is. And, 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 and it'll work itself out. I think a lot of our life's regrets come from this deep-seated belief that we believe life is long, not short. What I try to do is really, and I fail, I'm telling you that right now is to have a deep-seated belief that life is actually short, that it is finite, and that it is fleeting. I wrote, I'm 39 years old, I wrote Oceans for a living, I do adventure for a living, and I teach leadership because that is what I think the 10-year-old Jason back in Walnut Creek would, would have wanted me to do. And not that I don't make small concessions, but these are the things that I want to do. So when people look at me and say, oh, why another ocean? Well, does it really matter? You know, it, it does to me because this is what I love to do. I love to go out there, put myself in these tough situations, learn about myself, learn about my teammates, and then use that to teach in my leadership programs. That is living life. So if I'm if leaving you with a habit, it's to think of life as truly being short. We don't just say it, we believe it. And that, that's been a big one for me. Yeah, I like that. I really do. You know, it's about like, you know, there's all these cliches and language and motivational quotes and shit like that, that people throw everywhere. But how many of us are truly living um, these thoughts and these cliches? And I think it's really important. And I think reflecting on our mortality daily is strong. I mean, the Buddhists do it. It's a meditation. It's a form of meditation that enables us and not a morbid one. No. It's not a morbid reflection. It's about really understanding that, yeah, because our human ego will tell us that we're infinite, that we'll be here forever. That's part of how we have and, you know, we deal, I suppose, with death is having a denial about it. But one of the things that does is it, it doesn't enable us to truly embrace our true north on a daily basis. And, I, you know, I really I love what you're doing. You know, I think it's the it's at the intersection of high performance ultra which i love uh, and you're taking your personal learnings and you're giving it away um, it's tried and tested knowledge which is wisdom in my view and as you said earlier you know there's a lot of research there's a lot of information but what you're bringing to organizations is crucibles and you're effectively recreating processes 
that are going to help these individuals within a team become stronger collectively. And that's a very noble mission. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, you nailed it. And we, by the way, knowing that life is short or believing it is not morbid. Like you said, it's celebratory. It's, it's, it's what makes us human beings and what makes us so unique. And I love that. So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a happy thing, not a sad thing. Mate. Well, look, I think we'll leave it there. I really, really appreciate you, Jason. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for sharing your strength and your wisdom and your story with the Ultra Habits community. Where can we find you, man? Where can our audience find you if they're looking? Yeah, uh, you know, on social media, Instagram is a great way at Jason underscore T underscore Caldwell. You'll find me there. And um, uh, look for Jason Caldwell on LinkedIn, and and also I, I, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. And please, if you've got, if any of this stuff solicited any other questions, uh, would love to hear from you because um, I don't want this to be the end of the conversation. So, thanks, brother. Thank you.